You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Episode 85 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. We are glad you have joined us as always. The racial unrest in the wake of the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police on May 25th, 2020, raised once again a fierce debate over what we should do with symbols of the Confederacy, a society defined by its racism and white supremacy. Black Lives Matter protesters turned their anger on these public monuments as an expression of their frustration with the state of race relations in the United States. Confederate monuments in Birmingham and Montgomery, Alabama, Washington, D.C., Lothian, Frederick, and Silver Spring, Maryland, Seattle, Washington, Greensboro and Clinton, North Carolina, Pensacola, Florida, and Portsmouth, Roanoke, and Richmond, Virginia, to name a few, were either damaged or toppled by protesters. Hundreds of monuments were removed by local and state officials, sometimes in the middle of the night, and relocated to cemeteries, museums, historical sites, or storage facilities. Richmond moved most of the Confederate monuments from its famous Monument Avenue, the 60-foot-high Robert E. Lee Monument, which was covered with graffiti during the Black Lives Matter protests, still remains until the city decides what to do with it. In Alabama and North Carolina, the removal of these statues, even if done by government officials, is a violation of state laws. In Montgomery, four people faced felony charges after they removed a statue of Robert E. Lee from Robert E. Lee High School. In Birmingham, Mayor Randall Woodfin said that the $25,000 fine for violating the Alabama Memorial Preservation Act was more affordable than the cost of continued unrest in the city. Non-Confederate monuments were also removed or damaged, including those erected to commemorate Spanish missionaries and conquistadors, involved in the killing of Native Americans. Christopher Columbus monuments raised by Italian-American heritage groups were toppled or removed. Even statues of George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, Ulysses S. Grant, Francis Scott Key, George Whitfield, Frederick Douglass, Mahatma Gandhi, and Thomas Jefferson were decapitated toppled, or taken down by local authorities. So what should we make of all of this? Our guest today is Karen L. Cox. 
a public historian whose work focuses on the ways the South remembers its past. Her most recent book, No Common Ground, Confederate Monuments of the Ongoing Fight for Racial Justice, is necessary reading for anyone who wants to think historically about our ongoing debate surrounding Confederate monuments. Cox depicts what these statues meant to those who erected them and how a movement arose to force a reckoning with this past. Get ready for a fascinating and timely conversation. Karen Cox will be with us shortly, but first, let's take care of some business. The Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. When you get a chance, head over to recordedhistory.net to check out some of our fellow network podcasts. This free podcast is brought to you through the patrons of Current, an online journal of commentary and opinion that provides daily reflection on contemporary culture, politics, and ideas. We keep this going by your generous financial donations. If you like what you read or hear at Current and want to support our work, and that includes this bi-monthly podcast, our daily opinion features, the Way of Improvement Leads Home blog, and our narrative podcast on the history of evangelicals and politics, head over to currentpub.com and click the red support button, or go directly to our Patreon page at Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com backslash the way of improvement. The best way to spread the word about the podcast is to tell a friend. You can follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast at John Fia one or at current underscore pub one on Twitter. And we are also on Facebook and Instagram. If you'd like an episode, give us a share or a retweet and consider a positive review on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Karen L. Cox is professor of history at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. She is the author of Dixie's Daughters, the United Daughters of the Confederacy and the Preservation of Confederate Culture. That book won the Julia Cherry Spruill Prize from the Southern Association for Women Historians for the best book in Southern women's history. Her other edited or authored books include Dreaming of Dixie, How the South Was Created in American Popular Culture, and Goat Castle, A True Story of Murder, race, and the Gothic South. Her writing has appeared at the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Atlantic, among other places. Our interview today is based on her latest book, No Common Ground, Confederate Monuments, and the Ongoing Fight for Racial Justice. Our guest today on the podcast is Karen L. Cox. She is the author of No Common Ground, Confederate Monuments and the Ongoing Fight for Racial Justice. Karen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Oh, I'm happy to join you today. So let's let's start with just some 
some data, right? You talk a little bit about this in the book. How many Confederate monuments are still standing after the events of the summer of 2020? So, you know, the figures seem to really do vary in the media. And so it was important to me that I, I speak with the one one source that we know we can pretty much count on, which is the the figures from the Southern Poverty Law Center. Um, and I've seen some, you know, data uh, maps and, you know, that people have done some data analysis in anywhere from 771 to 830. So I just pick a number 800, you know, to keep it simple for people. And of the 800, only probably about 100 have come down in total. That's it. 700 still remain. And, you know, some of the figures out there are maybe talking about a memorial, could be a marker, a plaque or whatever. Some of those things have gone away. But in terms of the statuary, maybe 100. So prior to, say, we'll just pick sort of, say, the, 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 the murder of George Floyd, there were roughly 800 and now there's about 700. Well, I think that of the 800, there were a few taken down after the Charleston massacre. Okay. Couple dozen after Charlottesville. And then the bulk is probably of that since last summer. So that kind of goes against, I think, popular perception, especially that those people maybe on the right have, right? That all these monuments are being torn down by these evil lefties who want to erase history, right? Right. And the thing about this thing is, is that um, even when they've been removed, and that doesn't mean that they've been destroyed, yeah. many of them are, are in storage. Uh, we, what we yeah. saw was a few that got pummeled in Richmond. You know, the Jefferson Davis Monument is a, a, an example that got pummeled. But that's it. Yeah. That's it. Really, they, you know, the first one I can remember where people just ripped it off and destroyed it was in Durham, North Carolina, after, um, after the Charlottesville uh, Unite the Right rally. Yeah. So, yeah, so the vast majority remain in place. And, and when you say in play, um, in place, in place, I mean, and, mm-hmm. and maybe maybe the question I want to ask is about in play in terms of discussion about sure. removal. Like, I'm assuming there are monuments that are just going to stay. They're not even any debate going on that we should take these down. Right. Is that would you say that's the majority, the minority or are most of the ones that are still standing now under some kind of uh discussion about removal? I don't know if you can answer that question. Or not. I, I think um, in many places, you know, let's just take one state, for example, let's take Louisiana. In New Orleans, there was a big, you know, a lot of press about the removal of monuments in New Orleans. Go outside of New Orleans, there's not, no discussion. You know, there's, there's some, there are some communities that are talking about that, but um, Shreveport did something. I think Lafayette did something. But again, if you think about most of the states uh, where monuments exist, well, first of all, there are monument laws that are really getting in the way of all of this happening. Um, so uh, the most, most of the monuments have come down in Virginia and North Carolina. Virginia, because the law changed, because there was a turnover in the party that rules the state legislature. 
In North Carolina, there was a loophole. It becomes an issue of public safety. A lot of communities use that loophole. Yeah. But in some, it's just not happening. It, you know, yeah, they're not going that's, anywhere. That's helpful. That clarifies some things, um, especially for those who think that either A, most of them are now being taken down, or B, almost all of them that are still standing are being discussed, right? Right. Um, let's get into uh, some of the history here. Now, I think most of my listeners of this podcast would would have heard the term lost cause. Maybe some of them would be able to define it. Again, how are these Confederate monuments, just for those who are not up to speed on this or are just trying to cut, turn to this podcast to just get some information about all this subject, uh, how is the lost cause and Confederate monuments linked? What is the lost cause and how is it? How is this idea linked to Confederate monuments? Right. So the lost cause is essentially a revisionist narrative. Some people think it's a myth, you know, or a mythological narrative of what, uh, of why the South um, went, you know, seceded, why, why the Confederacy fought the Civil War, you know, that it was about states' rights, it was never about slavery, um, and uh, makes basically heroes out of all Confederate soldiers. Um, you know, it, it's all about, um, you know, saving face after defeat and um, reinventing a narrative in which the defeated can appear uh, as heroic and you know, and sometimes this is about, you know, particular figures, you know, like a Robert E. Lee, and there's lots of probably more monuments to Robert E. Lee than any others. But in most towns, it'll be of the common soldier uh, on a pedestal and who is supposed to represent the veterans from that particular community. In some ways, what, what they're doing is it's a way to deal with defeat and monuments help white Southerners deal with defeat. Because most of them are built in the early 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century, um, the lost cause has moved into a different sort of era. It's not just about assuaging defeat, but now it's about vindicating uh, these men from defeat. So part of the lost cause is this was a just cause. This was a sacred cause. These men were uh, should be revered because they were the true inheritors of the of the American Revolution, that revolutionary generation, and that they are they sought to protect the Constitution. Very specific, though, is the Tenth Amendment uh, preserving states' rights. So monuments are there to vindicate men, you know, vindicate them from defeat. But also, uh, it's not just a backwards-looking narrative; it's a forward-looking narrative. Um, when the the United Daughters of the Confederacy, which is the primary organization placing these monuments on the grounds of courthouses around the South or in the public square and other, you know, beyond the courthouse, um, they really had an eye on the future. They saw this as about preserving um, not only this narrative of a heroic South, of a, you know, of a Confederacy that was a just cause. And, you know, of course, I link it to white supremacy because of where they're located. But the UDC was very, you know, Look forward looking because they said we want they're really trying to shape the next the future generations of white southerners to revere these ancestors but also to protect and preserve 
um, the ideals and the values for which they fought, which included um, white supremacy in the absence of slavery, because they couldn't, you know, maintain that, as well as the whole issue of states' rights. So these monuments, when they were erected, and again, a lot of them erected in this period between, say, the end of the 19th century, 1890, I think you put it out in World War One. They, they were erected to be kind of in your face, right, to the, to the African-American community or anyone else who might disagree with this kind of lost cause mentality. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think this is a combination of things. I think, you know, one could make an argument, oh, yes, they were honoring their ancestors. Right. But, but the placement of them on the grounds of courthouse at the place that is supposed to be democratic space is signaling to the black community, you're second class. Yeah, yeah. Um, you're a second class citizen. And um, these values uh, we still believe in and may want to maintain. And all you need to do is look at a unveiling speech, which is one of the things I did for this book is read the unveiling speeches and read what they have to say about that day and what they were thinking about and, and the words Anglo-Saxon supremacy come up almost every single time. Yeah. So when you hear African-Americans today, Black Americans today saying, you know, I am offended when I every time I drive by that Lee uh, monument, they are actually reflecting the original intent of what that monument should be doing in some cases, right? They're supposed to be uh, feeling that way from the perspective of the white supremacists who put it up. Absolutely. Because, you know, and and it's meant to say you're not welcome here. Right, right. You're not welcome. And, and, and uh, you know, a friend of mine who's an uh, African-American woman who I visited and I went back up to Richmond in last November, I wanted to see um, the Lee Monument, yeah. you know, in in uh, that's been reinterpreted. Let's say, and all it's <laughs> yeah. And uh, one of the things she said to me is, she said, "Black folks never felt comfortable in that space or yeah. these spaces." Yeah, and we weren't didn't feel welcome. Right, we didn't feel welcome, and so you you know, so that's a all along Monument Avenue that you didn't feel welcome. But also, you know, I think for a lot of people in, in their communities, it's, it's, a, it's another thing. And it's, if people have to think about these spaces that this is where um, court cases are held, uh, where many of whom would have been black defendants in the era of Jim Crow. Um, it's, it's also uh, places where people were lynched on the courthouse grounds. Um, it's also later on where people, um, civil rights, Marchers are going to register to vote. You have to walk by these these yeah. figures that signal to you, you know. I want to come back to the civil rights movement and the sure. way these monuments played out in that era. You, Karen, are a Southern historian, historian of the South, I should say, um, a public historian uh, and a women's historian, right? To what extent, and I know you've written about this in other books, but to what extent is this book a women's, a history of women, right, of Southern women? Um, because, you know, you're talking about the Daughters of the Confederacy before, but, you know, women play a dominant role in this whole propagation of kind of monuments and the lost cause and white supremacy and so forth. 
and I know this is your kind of sweet spot, right? Scholarship, <laughs> but but tell us a little bit about the role of women in all of this. Sure. So immediately after the Civil War, women are involved in the memorialization of the Confederacy and uh, of dead Confederates. Mm -hmm. uh, they um, form ladies' memorial associations and um, whose job is really, well, the, their role they see themselves as creating Confederate cemeteries, uh, returning the bodies that um, from their community from far-flung battlefields. And when they did that, they often left space for a Confederate uh, monument in the middle of the cemetery. So women are, are doing this immediately after the Civil War. And the Ladies Memorial Association is active um, and active uh, until, you know, the UDC is formed, which is the second generation of women who take on, on, this, on the, these projects. I think it's really interesting, the story you know, that I mention in, in, um, in the book uh, of the Robert E. Lee Monument on Richmond Avenue and how Jubal Early's group of veterans believe like they're the ones who are going to be responsible for erecting this monument. And they realize really swiftly that they're going to have to go to the women in the community, Janet Randolph, and, and, and say, you know, we need your help with the fundraising. But you know, he, and, and she was pretty clear. It's like, you, you're not going to do this. You're not going to cut us out of the decision-making if you want us to make, you know, help you raise this money. So they're, they're very powerful right away. And then you have that second generation of women, the United Daughters of the Confederacy that um, extends the lost calls well into the 20th century through a wide ranging agenda from educating children about the lost calls, forming children of the Confederacy chapters, which is their auxiliary. Um, they're, you know, involved in schools. They're putting portraits of, of Confederate heroes in the schools. They're monitoring his, uh, textbooks, which is a, a, a topic that's on the minds of a lot of people right now. Uh, they were doing this uh, early on. And, uh, and of course, they were building these monuments. Um, and so there's just all of these things work together. Yeah. It's not one single, you know, lane that they're in. They're, they're like, they're doing a lot of different things at once, all of which I believed in, which I said in my first book about the UDC, shapes the culture of the South. And that, that by doing that, what they're doing is they're supporting, they're providing this cultural underpinning for the legal segregation, the, you know, the, whether it's the racial violence, the legalizing of Jim Crow, uh, anything that men are doing politically, women are doing culturally. Yeah. Yeah. And they, and, and you point this out, I think it's kind of a quick sentence in the book, but it's worth just noting, um, you know, this first generation, right before the the daughters of the United Daughters of the Confederacy are formed are they can't even vote right so they can't they right. don't have any political power so to speak but your point about the cultural power is well taken why 1892 to 19 what 17 1918 World War One right why what was it about this era that led to the erection of all these monuments? Because this was an ongoing theme during the debates over this summer, but even all the way back since like the Unite, Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville or even the Mother Emanuel, you know, you referenced that in the book. You know, everybody, all the historians were entering into the conversation, including yourself, right? Saying these were 
built much later, right? Then, then right. you know, there's this common misperception that these monuments were erected on like, you know, 1866, 67, 68. And some of them were, but most of them were built in 18, this period right, around the turn of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. What was going on? Why, why was this moment so important to the erection of these Confederate monuments? Well, um, there's several things, there's several layers to that, but beginning, you know, what I, the way I see it is that beginning, you know, in the 1890s, Southern states, one after another began disfranchising black men from the vote. And, um, it was the 1890s was also a period of intense racial violence and, and, and an epidemic of lynching. And, um, and into that what is like, I would say, a void of some sort. They've gotten, you know, moved men out of the public sphere. These white women uh, in the United Daughters of the Confederacy enter into that. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you watch the, the, the monument building, it, it, it mirrors the growth of the United Daughters of the Confederacy. But it is this, this the backdrop is the racial violence, the disfranchisement, et cetera. And then you enter into the 20th century and then, you know, it's, it's, you know, we're going to, it's legalizing segregation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, uh, you know, all of these things are, are, are um, pushing African-Americans sort of, you know, forcing them down into second-class citizenship. And again, as I said, the UDC is growing during this same period of time. And so they essentially, because these women are married or related to men of power in the region, they have sort of carte blanche to do what they want. They can go, you know, they're very good at fundraising and they're good at lobbying, you know, um, these men. And and I, I imagine that, you know, men like to be flattered as much as women. You know, these guys are getting flattered by uh, the fact that these women are erecting monuments in their honor, et cetera. So uh, a lot of those things are happening. And and um, I, I have to say, you know, if you don't mind me, as like a little personal note here. Sure. It's like whenever I, you know, this is a heavy topic, right? And it's it feels heavy on me sometimes. I, I feel that because if you read the material and you you get into it, but it's like it can't even like touch what it must feel like to have been an African-American in the era of Jim Crow in the South when these monuments are going up and you're losing your, you know, losing the right to vote, the monuments are going up, the lynching occurs. It's just must, it's just like such a suffocating, it must be a suffocating feeling. Um, You have this, uh, you know, you have this amazing photo in the which which I just sat there and stared at for a while of um, and I'm going to try to find it here it's of the Emmett Till trial yes and um you know I, I mean it's just so powerful it's 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 these African-American uh, men and women sitting on a Confederate monument outside the courthouse in Sumner, Mississippi in 1955, while the trial of Emmett Till is going on inside and all the white people are inside watching it. You know, and you use this, I think, to, to illustrate the connection between uh, the sort of civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s and um the monuments. Maybe give, you know, you have the Till case, maybe that's what you want to talk about, but give me one, maybe two examples of the way in which monuments um, 
were connected somehow with the struggle for black uh, civil rights, or at least the resistance to monuments or the role monuments played in all of this. Uh, yeah. Because this is really where you begin to see, you know, a, and this is, I think, a great part of your book, right? The central part of your book, this kind of on, ongoing, you call it the ongoing fight for racial justice, mm -hmm. uh, you know, beginning to, to, to take root. Yeah, so, you know, the, it, the period, the early period obviously was the period I knew most about. And as I was researching this, I, I was thinking about, okay, first of all, one of the things I wasn't finding, which is a, a narrative that the media has put out, is that there was an explosion of Confederate monument building in, during the Civil Rights era. That's simply false. Um, there were about 20 built in the 50s and about 20 in the 1960s compared to like years during the, you know, when there were like several hundred being built, right? Um, and so I had to think, you know, one of the things, the way of thinking about it is like, you know, is the way in which these monuments are reanimated in a way and that they're being reused for a different purpose during the 50s and 60s. And so on the one hand, you know, I began that chapter talking about the Emmett Till trial, that photograph, you know, I was so lucky to find that, first of all. Um, I was reading about it first, right? It, I didn't have a visual for it. Yeah. Um, but reading about it and that description coming from the paper, and, and then when I found the photo, it was just, that was really powerful, you know, yeah. to see that, you know, here is a group of people who are invested in the outcome of this trial who are, you know, been living in this, in Jim Crow, Mississippi, which is pretty violent place anyway, uh, on a daily basis. And, and to see that they're there to me was really powerful. So it's asserting themselves in that way. There was, you know, in the fifties, there'd be, you know, again, on Confederate Memorial Day, which continued to be commemorated in, in, uh, across the South speeches during the fifties included, you know, like one I, I refer to from Vicksburg where the, where uh, a, a state official is giving a speech that's about Confederate Memorial Day, but he, he gets off track and starts talking about, you know, the federal intrusion. You know, he's using the lost cause and the federal intrusion of, of, um, on, over the issue of civil rights, and he talks about communism, you know, so, which is code for civil rights, you know, in the, in the South at this time. And so, and so it get you know, so it's being used that way. Um, then there, you know, during the Civil War centennial, you do see, to me, the Civil War centennial was a lost cause centennial, uh, especially across the South. And so you, while there are new monuments are, are being built and go into these, um, uh, into battlefield parks, for example, like Vicksburg or wherever, um, you know, this is, this is certainly uh, rubbing against the civil rights movement because the the civil war centennial is 1861 i mean 1961 to 65 the most intense period of the civil rights movement so these things are at odds the lost cause in the civil rights movement are at odds and uh, the thing that actually uh jumped out at me more than anything was the use of the battle flag the confederate battle flag during this period uh, of course you know a lot of times these battle flags are on flagpoles adjacent to Confederate monuments. So this is this, you know, both of those symbols are there at the courthouse. 
And, um, and so I wanted to talk about, you know, in some ways it's, you know, people are mentioning these things and they're, they would love to see them, you know, destroyed. Um, but civil rights activists, I think are really, really are focused on the civil rights act and the voting rights act. Um, so during that, during that period. And then of course I get into what happens post voting rights. Yeah. What, what, again, let's fast forward even more. When does, when does kind of the discussion of removing Confederate monies, it happens before, you know, mother Emanuel or Charlottesville, or obviously George Floyd and so forth. I mean, when does the conversation begin about, you know, these monuments are morally problematic or, Mm -hmm. you know, and they need to be taken down? Well, you know, once, once um, African-American representatives are now, are being elected to as local officials, uh, either on city councils or local government, um, you begin to see, you, you begin to hear criticism about, about these things. Um, and then in terms of, you know, there's always an effort to remove battle flags on, on government properties, you know. Um, but the, the first dis- like public discussion that I, that I discovered was in Shreveport, Louisiana in like 80, 1987. They said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And said, well, you know, and uh, that was a big brouhaha, of course, you know, and it plays out. And that's that's really interesting the way that these letters to the editor play out. And you can really see what the, you know, this is part of the reason there's no common ground in the the title of the book, because there isn't. There's just, it's my way or no way, you know, if you're on a member of the Sons of Confederate Veterans. But if you're an African-American, they begin to like actually talk about how this makes them feel. So the the first real removal is in Selma, Alabama, not in New Orleans, which I think is powerful. Like, you know, if you think about the civil rights legacy of of Selma, Alabama, um, it was in 2000. And the city was that the Bedford Forest. Yes. Nathan Bedford Forest. Yeah. Like that they even wanted to put one up in that year is amazing already right but there's a there was a nascent neo-confederate movement in the 1990s that was just you know led by the league of the south that organization there were others that and then it's splintered in all kinds of ways in in the last um 25 years or so but you know there are discussions that are beginning you know because when people start to talk about removing the Confederate battle flag, you know, conservatives are on alert. Their antenna get, went up, you know, and they were like, oh, they're coming for the monuments next, right? That was their, their way of thinking about it. And so, you know, there were a- efforts in the early uh, 21st century in that first, you know, between 2000 and 2010 to say, could we, you know, could we possibly put some contextual panels out there? I mean, that was a small ask, honestly. And they were getting shot down uh, about just even doing something like that. So um, anyway, so yes. So let's bring this up to kind of the present here. You know, you we've talked about these three kind of important moments. You know, you point them out in the book. You have the, the Dylan Roof shooting 
at the African-American Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. You have uh, August of 2017, the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. And then, of course, the murders this summer, the most prominent being, I'm sorry, summer of 2020, the most prominent being uh, George Floyd's murder in Minneapolis. How do these events change or do they change? I'm assuming they do, right? The conversation about Confederate monuments. And I'm even wondering if something changed from Charlottesville to George Floyd, um, you know, or, or do you see continuity there? You know, how did these events kind of blow everything up and bring this issue to the forefront in a way it's never been before? I mean, in some ways the answer is obvious, but, you know, maybe a kind of nuanced take from a historian here. Well, for me, it's it's really the for me, it is the the Charleston massacre, the murder of of nine parishioners in their church, Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. Dylan Roof had obviously been influenced by white nationalist rhetoric already, you know, he before he goes in there. But this it's that point when this becomes not a regional debate it becomes a national discussion that it's that's the the big thing because that summer as i point out in the book was the summer before the 2016 election and there was this huge field of republican candidates for president and every one of them got asked about about this and you see that and so i think what happened is when um South Carolina decided to finally remove the Confederate battle flag from the grounds of the state capitol, which was a miracle because they were, they were still debating that. They weren't going down willing, willingly with that. But I think politicians throughout the region, conservative politicians, if, if the Confederate battle flag can be removed in South Carolina, what's, hap- what's next? They, you know, they're again think monuments are next, right? And that's exactly what happened. So North Carolina, where I live, passed the very first monument law in 2015, the month after this massacre, and which to me is one of those insidious bits of you know timing. You can imagine, you know, it's like and when you say a monuments law, a law forbidding the removal, right? Of Right. So there are these, they call them monument laws or heritage protection acts, but essentially it's preventing local control. It takes away local control so that a community says, you know, wants to remove its monument, can't do it any anymore because of this state law that overrides local, local law. And so it was that it began there. Um, you know, some monuments got taken down before some laws went into place. Right. Um, and then, um, and then of course, Charlottesville, uh, there was picked up the pace, but what you see is like a terrible tragedy will happen. Some of this gets changed and then it calms down. The next big tragedy was Charlottesville, right? That, you know, cause a woman lost her life, Heather Hayer lost her life. And when a guy drove into that crowd and killed her and, and injured other people. So there's another tragedy. A few more monuments come down. There's more, there's another discussion, <laughs> another national discussion. 
And then, I mean, everyone knows what it, what the you know the political landscape has looked like. You know, um, between sixteen and twenty, and then um, and then the George Floyd murder happens, and that's when you get it's bigger, and then it becomes almost like a worldwide, as a global mm-hmm. uh, uprising over these issues. And when I when I think about monuments, I think about monuments are just a symbol of what. Of, of these debates over systemic racism, over white supremacy, over police brutality, they they kind of s- serve that purpose. And so we saw more movement, but it's calmed down again, right? And also in this period, we've seen more of these uh, monument laws that are preventing removal go into place. That's where we're at because, and you saw the another one was just passed in Florida in April, signed into law that says it makes if you rip down a monument, it's a second degree felony. You can go to prison for fifteen years. Wow! So they're like using this as, certainly as a wedge issue and to you know to divide people, but they're criminalizing it. Um, it, you know, it, it's along with all kinds of, you know, it's it's part of this whole. Yeah, the know, textbooks and the critical race theory and the whole, the whole conversation yeah. is all linked together. Let me, uh, our time's running out here, but let me ask you a couple kind of public history questions sure. about all of this. Uh, you're down there in the South. You're in North Carolina, right? You've been talking a little bit about North Carolina today. Mm-hmm. And I know you do a lot of public speaking, right, to sort of, you know, uh, popular groups and so forth. Quick answer, right? I know you could write another whole book about this, but <laughs> what do you say to conservatives who say well, pulling down a monument is, quote unquote, erasing history? You know, this is, I had to learn, you know, I have to develop a response for this, right? You have to have a good one because I figured you had one ready to go. That was the the go-to, right? The thing is like, first of all, no monument ever taught a history lesson. The second thing is, is that history isn't being erased. What would be happening if a monument is removed is a divisive symbol has been moved out of the public square. Mm -hmm. Um, And as a historian, uh, I know, and you know, that you can go to the library, you can go to a state archives, we can always learn the history of these monuments through photographs, through the speeches that were given, through postcards that were made of them. Um, you know, this is what we do, you know, um, we, as historians, we, we dig into the, you know, the archives and the, uh, the primary sources or newspapers. Uh, and, my book. <laughs> let me let you read my book, and then you'll know the history of Confederate monument, and we'll know that the history has not been erased. Yeah, yeah. It's that's such a you know. I think it was a, a weak was, argument. <laughs> I think it was a Neck Gordon Reed or someone like that who maybe even been a tweet she sent out where it said something like, "You want to talk about erasing history? You know, look at how." Look at how little support and money is thrown into the study of the past, you know, in schools and so forth. You want to, you know, and, and yeah. you're worried about monuments, right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's like, give, you know, support the, the study of history. But, in, you know, the way that they think they're supporting it now is, is to, right. you know, tie historians' hands behind their back and put tape over their mouth, you know? <laughs> I wanted to ask you one more question about something you say in the book. There's, I think it's in your introduction, you suggest that maybe you come back to it again towards the end. You argue that 
Confederate monuments, uh, whether or not to remove them or not, uh, is uh, a local a local problem, right? You know, let's just say you're, let's just say you're kind of, you know, hired as a consultant by a local community about what to do with their Confederate monument. You know, how do you go about, how does a community go about thinking about the Confederate monument and how, whether or not they should remove it or, or how they should deal with it? Right. So I think that, um, cause I've been a consultant with sure, yeah. locally here with the city of Charlotte Part of the problem is, you know, being prevented to do things because of the law. It, yeah. The local community should be able to do it. And if they are, if they manage to get to a place where they can do something about it, then I think it's, it's important that, that the community, uh, community members, people be brought in, brought to the table to have a discussion about what to do in their community. You know, how do you want this, your the landscape of your of your town or your city to look. How do you represent yourself in the 21st century, not the the you know early 20th century? You know when when things were the way they were. So I you know I think there's a variety of ways of doing that. One of the things that that communities you know are able to do now is is apply for grants from the Mellon Foundation uh, that you know encourages communities to reimagine their their landscape. There, uh, whether it's a memorial landscape or whatever, I think artists are are involved in in, the, in these things. I I really do believe that you know there's a couple things that have to happen. You know, if the monument is removed, that's some that's a symbolic move. Uh, there must be some real serious discussion. I mean, some truth and reconciliation over this over the the history of race in our country, and that's the thing that you know, we're getting a lot of pushback on these days, you know, to be able to have that conversation and, and a reckoning with that history. And then think about, you know, how are you going to, how are you going to go forward? I want to say, I don't want to end on a note of gloom and doom. I'd yeah. like to say this, that there are people out there who are open-minded, who want to be informed. I have been speaking to um, people of faith, uh, churches, the North Carolina Council of Churches. I spoke to a big group. Uh, I've talked to a local Presbyterian church here in Charlotte. I do, I've talked to um, uh, an interracial group that in, in Louisville, Kentucky. The last talk I gave before the pandemic was in Morganton, North Carolina. And the, the people who came, the way they learned about it was through through their churches. Yeah. So I do think that while on I know that there are on one hand people are like don't touch any of these symbols on the other hand somebody says tear them all down I think there are there is this this is where I hope the book can be helpful is is reach the people who still want to um, make an educated informed opinion about the monuments and then to think creatively about what do things look like going forward yeah, that's a great way to end it. Thanks, Karen. We have been talking with Karen Cox. She's the author of No Common Ground, Confederate Monuments, and the Ongoing Fight for Racial Justice. Just came out in April of 2021 with the University of North Carolina Press. Karen, thanks a lot. This has been a very informative and really helpful conversation. Thank you so much, and I appreciate the questions. Great. Thank you.
Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Karen Cox. Uh, she is really at the cutting edge of a lot of these public history questions related to Confederate monuments. She's written a lot on this subject, not only in books, but also uh, she's all over the op-ed pages, giving local talks, consulting, really trying to make an effort at getting people to think historically about the Confederate monuments. I'd encourage you to go out and get a copy of No Common Ground. Very accessible, very well written, nice little, it's not too long, nice little primer on the subject of Confederate monuments. If you're going to sort of start someplace or maybe even read one thing on Confederate monuments, this might be the place to go. If you're a teacher, especially if you're a professor, this uh, works really, really well. Uh, I think this will work, I should say, really, really well in the classroom, a very, very helpful guide to much of these current debates going on right now about Confederate monuments in the United States and race in the United States. We hope you uh, enjoyed this episode. We will now be coming back every other week with a new episode of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. We appreciate your support. We appreciate your support, not only of this podcast, but all we are doing at currentpub.com. So please get over there, check us out. We'd love to have your financial support as we move forward. But until we talk again, uh, may your way of improvement always lead home. The Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast is published by Current, an online journal of commentary and opinion. Learn more at currentpub.com. Original music is by Overholt. I am your producer, Casey Lehman, and your host, as always, is John Thea. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.